0: Obviously, there's something lost in any sport when you're watching it on television. But tennis, you really, really don't get it unless you've actually, you're actually watching it. And the somehow the foreshortening of the screen, you don't get that the, the pace is changing all the time, and that there's different spins on the ball every time. It just looks like Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic are hitting the backhands back and forth to each other. It's way more complicated than that.
1: John I'm here. It's this week's Beyond the Baseline Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We have a special guest this week. It's an in-studio guest who's actually gracing us with his physical presence. Not often we have that, especially since we moved from Midtown Manhattan down to the Wall Street area. The guest this week, Jerry Maserati. For a long time, he was the editor of the New York Times Sunday magazine that everybody reads He's also a founding editor of Play, the New York Times sports magazine. And in his mid fifties, he decided to try something new and play tennis. Not recreationally, necessarily. He wanted to get really, really good. He did that, and his writing about this experience is late to the ball. It is an excellent. I don't even know what to call this. It's, it's part memoir, it's part sports book, and it's a lot of social science about getting old. It's a terrific read. It's really elegantly written very well-crafted book that I encourage everybody to read. There was an adaptation in the New York Times Week in Review section that we will link on the site, that it's a terrific read that will give you a sample of the book. Uh, but we uh, we really enjoyed talking, really enjoyed having him down here, and we'll welcome him now. Jerry Maserati, welcome to the Podcast Hubble at Sports Illustrated.
0: Thank you. Great to be here. Is this your
1: first podcast? Did it I hear correctly? It is. is my first podcast. I'm very excited. At the end, you'll have to uh, fill out a brief survey. Okay. We'll get Happy some, to. Uh, some bonus miles. So, okay. congrats on the book. Thank late, you. Late to the Ball. I guess I'll start here. Is this a tennis book?
0: It is, in part, a tennis book. I, it is also a book about aging, and specifically, I think about late middle age and that moment that. Uh, your career is winding down, and if you have kids, the nest is emptying, and uh, sort of what do you do with your life, and you're in a different place maybe than your dad or your granddad was. Uh, you're a little healthier. You didn't smoke. Uh, you have a little more energy, and what are you going to do with that time?
1: And this audio medium, people can't see this, but you, you do not look like someone who uh, is, is in retirement age with two kids Thank out, out of the house. But no, I mean, this This is, seems to me... it's part memoir, part meditation on time. Yeah, Did did you expect this going in? I mean, did you sort of expect the the tennis to be, I don't want to say conceit, but the tennis was almost a vehicle for you to explore some of the social science and some of this this geriatric research? Did did that sneak up on you, or was that your intent?
0: Well, the intent actually was I had read a book. Well, let me go. Let me step back one step. Um, It was one of the first experiences in my life that I actually kept a diary um, I don't know why I was never a diary uh, keeper but uh, when I started taking tennis lessons I began writing not in any sort of uh, psychologically dense or emotionally uh, um, in an emotional way but I uh, I said well this is what I did today my you know my forehand was a little deeper my you know my volleys were a little crisper or not and um, then I read a book uh, by Leanne Chapton. It was a book about being a novice. She was in a, she was, uh, it was a memoir about uh, being a serious swimmer in her teens and trying out for the Canadian Olympic team. And I thought there's a lot that she's going through that's not what I'm going through, but there's a lot that is. This whole idea of being a novice and being a novice in your late 50s. Um, and that was really the germ of the book like it's it seems like a new experience it's probably experience that that a lot of people are m- of my generation are having but probably an experience that a lot of people of previous generations didn't have so that was the germ of the book
1: i, I don't want to give away too much but in your in your mid 50s you you take up tennis and you are a novice as you say and really break break down the the task but you you get quite good
0: yeah i get Good. Uh, I get good enough to be a decent club player. Yeah, uh, tournaments. And- yeah, I play in tournaments. Uh, I lose, uh, and certainly in doubles, I'm able to stay on the court in uh, in in most of these tournaments. It that sort of playing at that level for me is more about measuring how how good I've gotten, uh, and actually just enjoying the company of the people who I get to meet at these tournaments. And actually, one of the byproducts I didn't expect uh, when I got into this is there's a kind of male friendship um, that I think a lot of guys experience when they're on their high school uh, you know sports teams and it's they're not the deep friendships necessarily that you that you have at that time but there's something about that kind of buddiness that's different and uh, that's something that I've experienced in in this whole process of of playing on tennis teams and and in senior leagues and that sort of stuff. These are people who don't ask you what you do the second question right, when they meet right. you. They're 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 really it's it seems superficial but it's actually not. It's pretty you're just you're sharing in this. You're in a kind of guild uh where you're all trying to get a little better at your game.
1: How did you how did you I mean you you could have tied flies and you could have picked up the accordion and and god knows <laughs> golf. How did you uh I just settle on tennis. Well,
0: golf would have been out because uh, we sort of had my wife and I sort of had a verbal prenup that there could be no golf because she thought it was basically parenting avoidance. That that should be enforceable
1: in in all fifty states. (laughs) I commend
0: your wife. Uh, But the uh, but you know tennis was always a game I I loved to watch. Now it is also true that I will watch almost anything. Uh, You know, I was on an assignment writing about an Icelandic rock band. 15 years ago and, uh, you know, got into curling for three days and so I, I can really watch anything but the, tennis, it, it was, it was always just, tennis struck me as something beautiful and complicated and, uh, I loved watching it for that reason and, uh, and it also seemed difficult, and I, I, I was drawn to the difficulty of it. And um, in some ways, that maybe that insulated me psychologically from ever worrying about getting better, because it's only so good you could get at something that complicated.
1: It's hard as hell, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I think that's a real—people talk about, oh, it's not telegenic, and where's LeBron James? And I, yeah. I think one of the core sort of growth stunters is just the fact that it's really hard.
0: It's really hard. And also, honestly, television— uh there to me obviously there's something lost in any sport when you're watching it on television but tennis you really really don't get it unless you've actually actually watching it and that somehow the foreshortening of the screen you don't get that the the pace is changing all the time and that there's different spins on the ball every time it just looks like Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic are hitting the backhands back and forth to each other it's way more complicated than that as you know because you know the sport so well um, but, I, you know, I love I, – I, and I and I think I was drawn originally, though, that changes in the course of my playing. I was drawn to the solitude of it uh, in the same way that I've, I'm drawn to the solitude of reading and writing, which are the things I've basically done with my life. And that somehow the, the tennis seemed like uh, – Uh, solitude times 10, you know, it was just, it was just, it's, it's so, you're, it's so gladiatorial. You're so on your own. You're, uh, there's, there's no teammates to pick you up. There's nowhere to hide. Somehow that was appealing too, though I came to love doubles in the end. (laughs) Even in cage
1: fighting for for one out of every three or five minutes, someone's patting you on the back and giving you instruction in water. This is solitary confinement. All right, let's take a quick break real quick. I want to tell you about the NBA playoffs. They, of course, are in high gear. The second round has been so much better than the first round here at the SI Podcast Network. We are in high gear as well. We give you hoop fans two great shows in one. First, there's open floor. You'll hear our man Lee Jenkins interview the most interesting personalities in basketball. Then, in addition, young Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver sit down once a week at least. Last night, they were up after the Portland-Golden State game, well into the infomercial hours Sharp and Gulliver, break down the best storylines of the playoffs. The NBA playoffs are here. We're all waiting to see if Golden State can repeat or if Cleveland can have the city's first championship since the 1600s or thereabouts. Again, that's SI's NBA podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Music, or at SI.com backslash podcast. How would you find the experience of writing about tennis to be? It's a, it's a weird sport to me to write about. Just yes. There, how many ways can you describe serena hit an ace
0: but. yeah no it's it's that's a challenge and and one of the other challenges i had in the book i think was trying to figure out at what uh, who am i writing for someone who has never watched a tennis match or am i writing for someone who uh is a tennis fanatic and where do you find the sort of happy medium there and uh and I had a lot of help from my editor, Colin Harrison, on this too. But you know, there were ways in which I just didn't want to slow down the book with explaining literally everything, and hope that I could just convey what was going on.
1: There are, help me here. What are there? Fifty-five chapters. 55? I mean, they're <laughs> small. I mean, it's written. Yes. I don't. Again, I don't want to give away too much, but it's it's written in sort of elegant, um, maybe four or five page chapters. And uh, it occurred to me there there are about as many chapters. As there are points in a set, was, was this intentional or my overthinking? Oh my god, this? that is
0: fantastic! No, I never, I never imagined but, that. I, I wanted the book to move quickly. I wanted, you know, I imagined uh, a book that someone could read in a weekend, uh, not two weeks, and uh, and that would have this sort of. Uh, propulsive force forward. For many years, I edited Michael Lewis. And Michael Lewis has this amazing ability like, to keep you going. And the it just tumbles forward. And you get through the book quickly. And I love that about his writing. And I don't have that style. He does it with sentences, starting with dependent clauses and and having those sentences tumble and tumble. And I don't have that sort of writing style. But I wanted that kind of um pace i wanted someone to to feel that they didn't they weren't going to be bogged down by this book and that's that really was what was behind the short chapters i assure you no one will be uh bogged down by uh, this book
1: no I, I mean i i think it's a really i i couldn't tell if you got into tennis and realized that it you could you could sort of insinuate all this other material i'm, I'm a sucker for any social yes. science so i yes. thought that was really interesting tasks and handedness yes um
0: well, I think but you can't it, it, write, as as you, as an author, know, I think, it's hard to write in this moment without taking into account neuroscience. It It right. is a development of our time. It tells us it's speculative, but the speculation is really smart, and it seems logically to tell us a lot about how our minds and bodies work. And one of the things that, was, that I really wanted to do by doing something physical as opposed to doing watercolors... Uh, uh, was to really understand my body, to embody life before my body broke down completely, to really kind of understand w- how my legs work. It sounds silly, but, you know, there's, uh, you know, my coach is constantly telling me to bend my knees, and I tell him, my knees are bent. He's no, they're not. Yes, they are. And then he shows me with his little phone dartfish, takes a little picture of me and says, look, your knees are not bent. And it feels like they're bent. And so you, there's just things are... Or the whole, when you're serving, making sure the rop, racket dropped behind your back far enough, and it feels like it is, except when you get tensed up, and then you stop doing that. And, right. uh, and, and you had, uh, you know, there were
1: times where you used data, and you used video, and you, yes. you really broke down your...
0: Uh... Well, I I played at, uh, you know, there's a there's a part of the book where I go down to... Florida for a week to a camp, and I, and I put myself through a regimen that a promising 12- or 13-year-old player would go through. And, I mean, what I learned there is I, I, I A, I'm not an athlete in my 60s, and B, I would have never been an athlete in my teens. I mean, I would have never been an athlete in my teens because I was the shortest, skinniest kid in every class picture, uh, picture until I'm through high school. But I also didn't have that drive, that incredible focus that these kids have to become great uh and they're you know and they're you know they're not they're they're not suffering illusions they're 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 they think they're gonna be d1 tennis players not pros but boy do they work hard Ugh. but you,
1: I mean you didn't um I know you've written a bit about the pro game elsewhere the, the pro game wasn't a big focus of this but I imagine no. when you when you're watching Djokovic return serve, or you're watching even, never mind, I mean, you're watching number 100 player right. hit, hit with pace and accuracy, you have a,
0: well, a I the, appreciation. the, the I, I love watching tennis, but I, I, I do believe that uh, professional tennis players exist uh, in a different world than we exist in. And I think this is True of all sports now in a way it wouldn't have been a generation or two ago where I mean if you if you watch the tennis channel and you watch a match that's being played in the you know a women's match in the 70s you can think even if it's an illusion you can think this is a very very highly refined version of the kind of game that I could play when you're looking at the players uh, who play today they're playing a different uh a, at a different, a different level sport it's point. almost a different sport. they just happen to be playing it within the confines that we play right. in, but they're um, you know they're hitting they're just so much more athletic and so much more powerful and 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 so well trained it's a, it's so that it is a different sport. I will say that if the one takeaway you might be able to get from professional tennis is to watch a good women 's doubles match you know if, if you you are a doubles player and I think most amateurs are you can watch it you can you can watch Martina Hingis how she moves and anticipates and gets herself in a posi- position to volley that's different and better than that's yours
1: um, I, I'm going to link the piece the Week in Review piece you had That was sort of a prelude to this uh-huh. book I don't think that gives away too much uh, I was talking about it with my with my mom who uh, is of a certain age she had an interesting point I thought to sort of attack, defend or modify this that, that apart from all the, the benefits um, sort of the, the secondary benefits, having a passion like this or having a new pursuit, at a certain age, you're doing so much because it's good for you. So stretch because it does X and eat kale because it does Y and then blueberries are good for memory. Just doing something volitionally that you just want to do that isn't being done for any secondary health reason has real benefits. I, she her, I couldn't her, agree more with that.
0: I couldn't agree w- more with that. And I think, you know... That plus the idea that here is a narrative that at least for a while longer you get to control. You exactly. you you are setting um, this thing in motion. You are getting better at it and you are getting more deeply into it. And it's a narrative that you have control of that some of the other narratives that make up your life you are seeding control of.
1: All right, let's take a quick break. This week on the SI Media Podcast, Richard Deitch welcomes the new voice of Monday Night Football. That's Sean McDonough, of course. He's taking over for Mike Tirico. Be sure to check out previous episodes as well, including Adnan Verk or Adrian Verk, as people mispronounce it. He's the first Muslim anchor at ESPN, a Canadian, very versatile, actually knows his tennis as well. He was in here the other day, and uh, we we talked a bit of tennis John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily has been a recent guest as well. Again, that's the SI Media Podcast, hosted by the inimitable Richard Deitch and his Twitter account. You can find it at si.com backslash podcast or your favorite podcast app of choice. That includes iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play Music. Um, all right, media detour. We, <laughs> we gave you a, a splashy intro, but um, apart from the New York Times Magazine, you also are the founder of Play, right?
0: I had the i I had the napkin. That, that's a founder. To I had a, a back of a napkin uh, sketch for play. Mark Bryant uh, came in and edited it and did an a absolutely remarkable job. But I yeah I had an idea that there might be a space uh, for a more uh, literary uh, sports magazine, and there have been those magazines over the years, and, and including yours. <laughs> but the um, uh, but there was not the. Uh, in the end there was just not the it was not there was not a business model to keep it going but i you know it was uh it was fun while it lasted
1: so the the david foster wallace federer piece comes in though which i think you could you could make incredible cases as, as good a piece of sports writing as there's been
0: i would in the last, say that last. too
1: yeah um you remember the first time you read that piece
0: i do uh actually uh i i i didn't know dave uh, except to say hello to him uh but I stood with him while he uh, Xeroxed <laughs> that piece, uh, which was, I think, about 140 pages long. He had big margins and spaces. And we stood there. And he had the bandana on, the whole bit. Uh, and then, uh, I, you know, he and uh, Mark uh, w- worked through the editing of it. Uh, I read it at a... a at, at a point when it was already edited and there was a controversy because he he wanted to maintain his serial commas the serial the comma that comes before and which is not time style right, right. uh and uh he was serious about it he said well I'm withdrawing the piece if I don't get to have these commas and I had to go to the uh, Bill Keller the executive editor of the New York Times who has a lot more had had a lot more on his mind at that point than serial commas and ask for permission to have the serial commas and uh you know after a an eye roll and an oive, he said uh yeah there's some battles <laughs> probably not not worth <laughs> fighting um
1: let's, let's take a little media detour i want to ask you three things people can fast forward if uh they're not into uh this crazy game but what what do you think's the role of the magazine in media 2016
0: that is a great question, and I don't we, really we ponder it every day here. I don't really have it. a I don't have a definitive answer. One of the things I do suspect it's going to uh, develop is uh, a return to print on a uh, you know, maybe a quarterly or biannual nature, a sort of McSweeney's kind of uh, magazine that's you know kind of beautiful, Coffee table object it maybe has only twenty or twenty five thousand readers, but they're willing to subscribe to it. And uh, because there is something about a print magazine that's just uh, you know that that experience of it, I think, is something that people s- still crave. Just not a lot of people. So we're
1: we're all uh, <laughs> we're we're all trying to figure out this game. You get to write one tennis piece. It, it could be recreational. It could be personal. It could. Uh, could be a player you want to profile. Um, what what intrigues you these days? What's what's the tennis piece that is is dying to be written? That hasn't been.
0: I, well, I, the piece I would like to write, and actually, uh, I may get to write it. One of these, I, I've been approached by a magazine that calls itself Racket Magazine. Okay. That is a that is starting up. It is one of these quarterly luxury magazines. And what I uh, what I'd like to be able to write about is. The most obscure tournament. I'd like to go to a tournament somewhere in China or like you know, a two hundred and fifty level. Not, not the wooden racket. No, no, of no, no, coffee. no. I mean like a, an ap, pro a, 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 tur- a pro tournament, and sort of imagine it. It could be. I could be wrong, but imagine that the people in this place don't quite know how to go to a tournament. Or, or go to a tennis tournament, and what's that like, and, and all the weird behavior that goes on, and the silences that are enforced, and all of that. I'd really just love to see how that actually works, and how the players feel about being in Godforsaken, I don't know where. And that's great. I, that would be really fun for you me. i love reading that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you
1: know, there was this whole push for China. And right. Some of it was because of Li Na. Some of it was just everybody wants their their beachhead. Right. And um, they would play this this event in Shanghai. And the stadium was, you know, an hour and a half from downtown, and they had a hard time drawing fans. But somebody said the best part was the media, who just had never right. covered an event like this. And they didn't know. You know, they said, Roger, you were lousy today. What do you say about that? <laughs> <laughs> he has this dumbfounded look uh, on his face. But it's the same idea. That, exactly. that there's, there's a, a certain, whole etiquette. There's a whole that, etiquette that goes with it. That
0: goes with this. That's been developed, you know, over 100 years. And it is a sport with lots of, you know, fussy etiquette, which I happen to think is good. For the sport, for all kinds of reasons, I think it actually is a uh, it's it's a refreshing change from what you get when you go to a lot of other sporting events. Um, But it does have its you know its ticks and its rules and its manners, and uh, um, that makes it special. I don't know.
1: Well, one one thing I liked about I mean this is very crisply written. I I don't don't know how much time you gave yourself, but this this, three three years, yeah, this, this in a red like it. But it also struck me that you did not have that, uh, that that jaded tennis fandom where everybody has an idea of what can be improved, and everyone's an idiot, and the alphabet soup, and the court's too big, and we right. should play let's. And right. I've never seen a sport with so many sort of carping yes. critics that also love the sport that then close ranks with yes. its criticism. But yeah. did, did you feel like you had to ward that off? Do you get caught up in how come I don't get Tennis Channel in Westchester? Like...
0: That's a really interesting question. I I think it, for me it's about maintaining fandom uh for as long and uh as deeply as you can. And I really learned this uh from my mentor Roger Angel, who you know, the legendary baseball writer and New Yorker editor and to look to to tr- to try to always be looking at tennis uh, as a fan and not a journalist in the way that if I were looking at the political system or something I would I would I would look as a journalist that, uh, that to be a noticer and take it on its own terms and just really um, uh, you know kind of immerse myself in the joy and beauty of great tennis and and take it for what it is I'm sure there are improvements that could be made or changes that could be made and uh, and the changes that have been made I have no problem with uh, a tie break I have you know there's things that I you know but I, I I like the individual character of particular tournaments I love that it's global and it moves around I'm a very much more a fan of the game than I am of an individual player I uh, I love Roger Federer because he's the most beautiful player and I love Rafa Nadal because he's one of the most intense competitors I have ever seen in any sport and and I, I, I love Djokovic and I think he's uh I think he's underappreciated actually. Uh, I think he's he may end up being the greatest player in any sort of measurable way uh there is if he stays healthy and motivated and he never plays in front of a crowd that uh that's rooting for him. So um so I, I actually uh I don't root for the I, I don't root for uh uh, any any of them individually, though I guess by mentioning those three, I am rooting for the fact that it's as you well know, it's been a golden age for men's tennis right now. But
1: uh, it, it sounds thoroughly logical to say that.
0: You uh-huh. like
1: Nadal? I, I can't imagine too many other. You know, I, I like Duke, Carolina, and Wake <laughs> Forest. I, I like I, I like Hillary, <laughs> Bernie, and Donald Trump. No, um, no,
0: I, 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 I. I uh, I agree with that. I think and also teams are maybe, you know, teams are tied to your locale and uh but you know, I, I you know, I, I liked MacEnroll and I liked Borg and you know, I, I, I you know, for different reasons. But uh I it's always been uh how I felt about tennis.
1: No, I mean I, I think it's unique to tennis. That you can appreciate these rivalries and you don't have to right. No one no one's a Red Sox and a Yankees
0: fan. And you need the rivalries. I think one of the things that uh, women's tennis is suffering from right now is is that it doesn't have those rivalries and serena is unrivaled and and has been for a while and that's a that's a weakness we love those rivalries and uh we get to watch them again and again and see how um they alter their games and little slight nuances that change in order to 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 get out to come out on time
1: well you know what i was thinking uh You just brought this up. We do do this without notes, so this is a little bit uh, (laughs) scattered. But one of the themes of your book, I think, too, is that the math is changing on aging and that as we're living longer and and science and nutrition is proceeding, being in your early 60s now isn't what it was even a few years ago. And I think we're seeing that maybe mirrored a bit. Yeah, I mean, this
0: isn't in the book. But if you you read uh, John Updike's uh, rabbit novels, Rabbit Angstrom, by the time he turns— he's 61 he's on a golf course in florida and he's afraid he's having a heart attack mm-hmm. golfing right um he was a big smoker um and which was uh, you know part of his generation it's different for us um and uh if you know if you are of a uh uh if you if you, if you're affluent for sure let's face it the, there's a different math if you're if you're affluent than if you're poor <laughs> and there's a different genetic math depending on you know whether you can uh, dodge certain diseases and that but yes I mean the overall vector is we're uh healthier longer with professional tennis players it's just the 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 shape they have to be in and the strength they have to develop you can't have that anymore at 16 years old you know they they just are bigger uh faster better and you know I think in all sports the money is so much uh, bigger that the motivation to stay in shape. I mean, you read, you know, McEnroe's books and all that. I mean, these these were not guys like in in you know, heavy workout training mode in Dubai heat in order to <laughs> right, right. <laughs> to prepare right. themselves for the season. These guys eating cheeseburgers and staying up till three in the morning. Uh, when when you're talking about Millions and millions of dollars that can potentially be made—that is a huge motivation. Whether it's baseball or basketball or tennis, to to keep yourself in shape. Well,
1: and then in tennis now, spread out over—you uh, know—I th- I think this Federer's 18th French Open. Unbelievable. So uh, the um, the window. The window. So he is,
0: uh, I think, a kind of well, Djokovic may be too, but but Roger Federer, it's just he's he just his his. His style is just so uh easy on his body uh that's not the same for rafa Nadal
1: how are you uh author question how are how are you doing with with your publicist here How are you doing with the publicity phase which i always always find to be you know uh, i I'll prepare you for an interview i Je- uh, jeremy what made you want to write this book <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this the uh it's been easier than I thought it would be uh partly because it's about myself it's the first time i've ever written something uh in the first person so it's e- it's just easier to talk about myself than it is to 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 talk about uh a story uh that's just been published in the new york times magazine about uh, bosnia or something where you are just you're nervous about making sure you have all your facts right and uh the, you you whatever it's just different when you're being asked about yourself and it just sort of can't, comes easier to me so um not so bad what's the state of your game uh i got hammered last night in a team doubles match um you know i uh the, i'm a lefty and it turns out even lefties hate playing lefties and they were they were two lefties and i just um my muscle memory kept telling me i was actually hitting to their backhand when in fact i was hitting to their forehand. <laughs> it's hard. Right? I mean, and uh so we lost two and two, but so that's the you know that's that's the state of that. Um i you know i uh there's certain things i get better at. Uh i think my uh backhand uh volley is better than it was a year ago. Uh i i really worked on that a lot over the winter. Uh you know, I, I I just enjoy I enjoy the game so much, and uh, and uh, knock on wood, it's not uh, making me it makes me sore, but it doesn't make me injured. Um, so that's the state of my game.
1: Great game, great book.
0: Thank thanks you. For, uh, thanks for coming by. Was thanks fine. for thanks for having me.
1: All right, that was this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast with in studio guest Jerry Maserati. Enjoyed that conversation a lot. I hope you did too. I'm John Wertheim. Our producer, as always, is the excellent Jamie Lasanti, a rising star in this media industry. We're going to try and get her to speak more on future podcasts. We will have another guest next week. It will be a French Open preview, and then I head to Roland Garros. We'll have some periodic dispatches from the 2016 French Open. Again, keep the suggestions coming. One of you suggested Dick Vital, and we were able to get him – The week before and that was a tremendously fun podcast we have other guests lined up but again suggestions welcome critique welcome feel free to follow us on facebook and twitter again that's this week's sports illustrated tennis podcast we'll do it again in seven days have a good week everyone